The New Testament scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll just be reading the first six verses of that. So 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 6. You can find it on page 956 of the Pew Bible. Hear then the word of the Lord. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You know, the, the Corinthians had written a, a letter to Paul. He had heard reports from them. They, they had written to him. And 1 Corinthians is his response to them. He's responding to uh, different things that he has received. In this particular case, Paul's instructing them uh, about how they ought to live in a polytheistic and idolatrous culture. Right? And some of the, the issues that arise because of that. And there's a lot for us to learn from this. Right? How do you live in a, a polytheistic culture? Polytheism, this is the idea that there are many gods. Right? How do you live in a society where there are many different objects of worship and objects of devotion? How do you deal with food when it's been sacrificed to idols? When an idol is, is given a blessing whenever it is butchered. That's what the Corinthians were having to deal with. Or how do you deal with the, the different communal feasts, right? The civic celebrations that everyone else takes part in. How do you deal with those when they're devoted to idols or false gods? How, how can you take part or not take part? Where, where's the line for us as Christians? And Paul actually gives a, a varied answer, right? It depends on the situation. It depends on the situation. It's not all one or nothing. But in this case, in the verses we read, uh, he gets right to the, the heart of the issue. Depending on your translation, you might have this, uh, where some of the things that Paul says are in quotation marks, right? So he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's, he's quoting something. That's what it seems to be anyway. Right? The, the Corinthians have evidently spoken of their great knowledge. And the knowledge that they had was, well, because we know that there is only one God, one true God, and one Lord, therefore, it doesn't really matter what we do in regards to all these other idols. It doesn't matter how we engage with these civic idols. We can do what we want because they're not real. Right? They don't matter. We can eat whatever we want. We can you know, enjoy these celebrations because they're not real. And they're almost right. right? In how Paul responds, they're, they're almost right. 
but they're also wrong because they're only almost right. Thinking that one has knowledge, right? Living out of that knowledge, Paul says it puffs up. They've become prideful. And we do this. We become prideful because we say, well, we get it, right? We get it. We know the truth. And we take pride in that. But what Paul says actually matters is love. Do you love God? Are you showing your devoted love to Him in what you're doing? When you're celebrating these civic idols, when you're eating these foods, are you showing love to God? And are you showing love to your neighbor out of that love for God? That's the real question. That's what actually matters. In all that you do, are you showing love to God and neighbor? In other words, as we've been, you know, getting into the the law of God, are you living according to God's law? Right? Paul's going to go on to say that, you know, this love of God as it's shown in loving neighbor, it means, you know, there's there, there are certain ways that you don't pass judgment on some people that don't eat certain foods, and maybe sometimes when, when you can eat food and not worry about it at all, and sometimes if it's been sacrificed to an idol, well, then you can't, you know, eat it with certain people because you don't want them to think that you are okay with that. So again, it's varied how you respond, how you act. He'll also go on to say you can't join yourself to an idol. So some of these celebrations where you're celebrating the idols of the culture, you, you can't do that because you can't join yourself to them. But for our purposes today, what I most want you to see is, is what he says about the Father and about Jesus Christ. Right? He says there are, you know, many gods. Again, depending on your translation, it might be in quotation marks, right? Many gods and many lords, right? We use those titles of them, but there's really only one true God, one creator, one that is above all, beyond all. There is only one. There are many things that may claim to have that kind of authority or may be the object of someone's devotion that only belongs to God, but they're still not God. They have a claim to be a Lord or a God, right? Whether they be persons or ideologies, beings, objects. No, but for us, there is one. There is one God, right? Whether it comes to the question of food, what we can eat, or how engaged we can be in a society that worships other gods, other than the true God, Uh, the most central and binding truth on how we might act is that there is one God, the triune God. And notice here how Paul describes God. He speaks of the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And then the, the same things are then said of the Son, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Right? The, the, the claims of deity are put squarely on Jesus Christ. He is the one, the one God, the one Lord. We're talking about the triune God. And so when we read things like the Ten Commandments, as we do that later today, we're going to be looking at the first commandment. Realize that this is speaking of 
Jesus Christ. And all questions of obedience, of, of living in a pluralistic culture, of Christian love, all of it starts with that single focus. Right? The love of this one God, this one Lord. And in this case, knowing that there is one God, one creator who is above all, that shouldn't puff us up. Right? It should not puff you up in pride. And it should not make you think, it now matters less how I engage with an idolatrous culture. It now matters less how I engage with those other objects of devotion and worship in my life. Actually, no, it matters, it matters more how you relate to them. Instead, this knowledge of the one God should make us zealous to make war with the idols of our hearts and our homes and our lives and our world. Right? Because Jesus Christ is the one, then he deserves all of the worship, the, the single-hearted, single-minded worship that we could give. Only he, only he deserves to be glorified in how we live. If you want to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, our text today is the first commandment, comes from Exodus 20 verse 3, and I'll read for us verses 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Congregation of Christ, you must serve the Lord your God with singleness of heart and mind. I know that there are things that you're holding back from the Lord, and I think you know as well. But faith cannot be half-hearted. Faith cannot be double-minded. Behold, your God is the Creator and the Redeemer, your Father, your Bridegroom. There is not a way to serve both God and man, both God and mammon, both God and your stomach, both God and anything. All idols must be cast down. All the storehouses of your heart must be purged. Everything and everyone that is keeping you from Christ must be confronted. Serve God with singleness of heart and mind. That is the challenge for you today from the text. You know, this first commandment is the most directly connected to the preface. Right? Two weeks ago, last week, we had Ben Leatherberry here preaching, but the week before, we looked at the preface to the Ten Commandments. And this, this particular commandment is the most connected to it. Right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The Lord your God is your God. 
He has made you holy. He has saved you, redeemed you. That means that he is worthy of, and not only worthy of, but it is due him all the worship and all the glory of your life. Right? It's due him and him alone, only him. You belong to him and him alone. You are to acknowledge him and him alone as God. The commandments start here with this one because everything else follows from it. Everything starts with him. You could sum up all the Ten Commandments with this one. You shall have no other gods before him. If you're to have no other gods before him, then that means that in all of your worship, in all of your life, in in how you, you live and treat other people, in your other relationships, all of it has to be done according to his ways. In other words, you love him and him alone, him above all others. That's what the commandments are all about, remember? It's all about the, the love of God that was shown in his great salvation and now the love that we then give toward him and toward one another. These commandments outline what a relationship with God looks like. And one who is truly following this one God will be of one heart and mind about following him alone. So let's dive a little bit deeper into this. We're going to go a little bit further with it. In some ways, we could just leave it there. I was just in a conversation this week with somebody talking about sermon lengths. And how, you know, there's kind of a divide where some people want really long sermons. Maybe sometimes they think, well, that's the way everybody used to do it. We should do really long sermons. Some people think probably when we go about 30 minutes, it's probably a little long. So we could maybe just leave it there. We're not going to. I do want to push deeper into it. I do want to do a little bit more. But that's really, that encapsulates all of it. Right? That encapsulates this, this commandment. Right? It's all about that, that single-minded, devoted love of God. You shall have no other gods before him. So this is how we're going to go a little bit deeper. First, I want to look at why you should have no other gods before him. And then we'll talk a little bit about how exactly you go about getting rid of these other gods, getting rid of other idols in your heart. So first, why should you have no other gods before him? Well, your complete and total devotion is due to God because he is your creator. And this is what really sets him apart from all other so-called gods, right? So-called lords, all idols. Whether they're human powers or spiritual beings, whether they're ideas that demand your loyalty over him, whatever we might give that label to, Right? And I'm, you know, I've been using the phrase, uh, you know, devotion, right? What are you most devoted to? To try to, you know, sometimes we think, well, an idol, that's just that, you know, stone statue. It's not always just a stone statue, right? That was just an object of loyalty and allegiance and devotion and worship. So what is that in your life? 
whatever we give that label to of God, of, of idol, all of them are on this side of the great creator-creature divide. There is only one creator, one God who made heaven and earth, the seas and all that are in them. One God who made all things, in whom all things exist, like we read in 1 Corinthians 8. There is only one. God is totally and completely different from anything that is this side of creation. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He's not limited or or confined. He's not within time. He was not created. There was no time when he was not. This is why he's God. And if you define God as something that is not that, right? There's something else beyond him, right? Well, when did God start? When, when was his beginning? Well, if there's an answer to that, then what you're talking about is not God. You're talking about something this side of that great distinction, creator-creature. The true God is the creator. And being that he is the creator, you must serve him with singleness of heart and mind. There's none like him. There is no one like our God. And so you need to recognize that any time that you're putting something in the place of God, right, giving that loyalty and allegiance to something else besides God himself, or even something else alongside of God himself, what you're doing is in essence to say that thing, you're, you're elevating it above that line, right? Here's the line, everything below it, this is all creation, everything that's been created or made, above it, that's a creator. You're in essence saying, well, now this is going up into that, that top category, right? Now this is like my creator, my sustainer. You're saying that there's something else there. You may not say it outright. You may not even think that consciously. But that is, in essence, what you're doing when anything has your devoted love and loyalty like Jesus Christ. And of course, we'd say, well, that's an absurdity, right? You can't just decide what is or isn't creation or creator. And yeah, that's, that's the, the absurdity of idolatry. Think of Isaiah when he, when he mocks the idolaters by saying, look, you, you take wood and you cut it in half and you use half of it to make a fire and cook a meal and then you use the other half as an object of your worship. That's, that's ridiculous. Yes, that, that is what we do anytime anyone or anything else takes that place that only Jesus Christ is due only God is due your total devotion because only he is the, the creator, the one who made you and sustains you. And secondly, he's not just your creator. And that would be enough, by the way. That should be enough. That, that should be everything. It shouldn't matter that he's anything else than that to you. That is enough to demand our complete loyalty, our complete devotion. But he's more than that for you. He is also the redeemer, your redeemer, 
you should serve him with singleness of mind and heart because he's not only the one that made you, but he is the one that has saved you. So he is doubly due your allegiance, your worship. As your redeemer, he has become your heavenly father. You've been adopted into his family. You've been made a co-heir with Christ. That's true of you if you've believed in Jesus Christ. And when we read about Israelite history, we should not just take it as something that happened to them, right? If you're in Christ, then you've been made a child of Abraham by faith. And so this is our history. When we read about the Exodus, when we read about the people being brought out of Egypt, that's our history. That's what happened to us if we've believed in Jesus Christ. And what is Israel called? What, what are we called by God at the time of the Exodus? Israel is the Lord's firstborn, right? His son, his child. He is the one father of us all, the Father Almighty. A son cannot have two fathers. Okay, now in this broken world, there's obviously times when somebody might have one father who either dies or abandons them or something like that and, be, you know, gains a different kind of a father. But there's still only one ultimate father. It's never quite the same. Now, now imagine if you're a father in here. Imagine that your son decides one day that they're going to treat someone else as their father, right? There's another man, and actually he, he's going to be my father for now on. He refuses to listen to you. He doesn't honor you. He doesn't respect you. He spends all of his time devoting himself to the good of, you know, another man, one who did not raise him, calling him father. It doesn't make the other man his father, right? It, it wouldn't change the reality. It wouldn't change the fact that, no, that's not his father. But imagine if a, a child acted that way. Even just thinking about it, I get angry, right? I feel a, a kind of anger inside of me. That would be wicked. It would be wrong. Right? There's a jealousy that I feel. Maybe if you're a father, you feel the same way. I just think of the, the shame of that, the indignity of it, of that being done to you. Right? It would be corrupt. And we're not, you know, in my analogy, we're not talking about a father who's, who's abandoned or abused a child. No, a good father, a faithful father, a loving father, and this is how he's repaid. Well, that is what you do when you devote yourself to anything other than the Lord. At least in that highest way, in that, in that, in that greatest way. With sing, singleness of mind and heart. He is the one who redeemed you. right? Whose family you are a part of and you repay him like that. Or think about it like this. Yahweh is the bridegroom of Israel. Right? The church is the bride of Christ. Right? Think of the shame and the indignity of a wife treating another man as if it were her husband. But that's what you do 
every time you give your devotion that is only due God to anything or anyone other than Him. He is your Creator. He is your Redeemer. He is your Father. He is the Bridegroom of Israel. And because of that, He is due an allegiance and a loyalty that is higher and greater than any other. Right? All other loyalties, all other allegiance, all other worship, it, it's something that is subsidiary that comes through first that initial loyalty and love. Don't give to anyone that singleness of mind and heart that only belongs to Him. Okay, so how do you do that? If, if we admit that we are a people of our time, a, a people of this world, a people of what is in many ways a polytheistic culture, and we admit that, that we, too, at times, give that love, that loyalty, that devotion to something else. How do you rid yourself of that? How do you rid yourself of, of idols? Well, first is that you have to begin by searching the storehouse of your heart and your mind in order to find those idols that need to be removed, those idols that are in places that only belong to God. Think about Josiah, King Josiah, when, when they find the book of the law, right? They, they didn't have it. They had lost it in the temple. And then one day they find it. And Josiah reads it. And then according to that, according to reading the law of God, he then knows what is and is not an idol. And so he goes out. And what does he do? He, he gets the idols out. They go into the temple. They remove all the idols from any of the high places, any, any of the places where worship was being offered. Right? They take them and they burn them and they, they crush the ashes and then they sprinkle that over the graves of the common people. Right? That's what it says. He, he goes all out in war against these idols. But first, he had to know that they were idols. And I should mention here that you know, when it says, you shall have no other gods before me, you could translate that idea before me as before my face. You shall have no other gods in my face, right? in my presence. Okay? And, and part of the idea here is that as God gives his law to the people, he doesn't just give these commands and then goes away. He actually gives quite a bit after this. And a large portion of that is that he instructs the people on how to build a dwelling place for his presence, right? The kind of place that he will dwell in, in the tabernacle. Later on, he will have them build a temple, right? A more permanent place where he can reside, where he can be. A, a, a space, a place that is for him and him alone. And part of the idea here then is that you are not to bring those other things, those idols, those false gods into his presence, into his place, the place that only he belongs. What we often do is, is not say, you know what, I'm not going to worship God, I'm going to go worship an idol. You probably aren't doing that. The very fact that you're here, right, you're here, you're, you're giving some honor, some worship to the one true God. That's, that's why you're here, I assume. We don't just say, you know what, I'm, I'm throwing off Jesus Christ altogether. What we do is we bring our other idols, our other gods, our, our household idols, and we bring them 
into God's presence. And we say, God, you need to share with these other gods. You need to share my heart with these. That's what it takes to have me. We devote ourselves to God, yes, but we devote ourselves to God as long as he lets us devote ourselves in other ways, right? As long as he lets us have fill in the blank, then we'll serve him. That has always been the more common form of idolatry of God's people, right? Not not completely throwing off the worship of God, but adding to it the worship of others, It's always been the more common sin in the church to bring in different ideologies or idols, practices, and give God's worship that he is due to others. And so this is likely what you do as well. If you have fallen into idolatry, this is what it probably looks like. But God does not want half of your heart He made all of it. He made your whole heart. He doesn't want just half of it. Right? Imagine a son saying, Dad, it's not that you aren't my dad. It's not that you're not my father. I'm just going to be a son to this other man as well. To your enemy. Right? And and he will get my sonly affection and loyalty just like you do. It's just... It's just the same. It's, you won't get any less than him. It'll be equal. Right? Do you see how corrupt that would be? Honey, I still love you. You're still my husband. I'm still going to sleep with you, but this man is going to share our bed. Or at least our room. That's what idolatry is. That's what you're doing any time you give to anyone or anything else, that which is only due to God, right? Allowing something else before him, something else in the place that he has complete and total claim to. This is also one of the ways that you can try to dig deeper and find out if there are idols that you're following, if there are these false gods, quote, unquote, if there is anything that you are more or even, even just as devoted to as the Lord, that's an idol. If there's anything that you say, well, I do, I mean, I, God has 80% of my life. I just need this 20% for this over here. That's an idol. That is a false God. You have to ask that if God would require it of you, would you be willing to give it up? Is there anything that you've put in that place where it doesn't belong, where if God said what it takes to follow me is to get rid of that from your life, would you say, here I am, Lord, absolutely, amen, I'll do it? Or would you fight him? When God takes your health or allows you physical pain, do you curse him in those moments? Or do you receive it all as as from his providential hand, his providential care, and actually rejoice in it and give him thanks? It's so common for us to idolize health. 
or length of life or comfort even in this life. And so we worship God as long as we're healthy, as long as we feel good. But the moment he takes that away, God, what are you doing? Why would you do that? How dare you take that from me? It's because it's an idol. He could take anything from us and it would be perfectly just, it would be perfectly right. We have to be willing to lay it all down. What about a spouse? Some of you have had your spouses taken away by death. And that is just one of the deepest losses that anybody can experience. Is Christ worth it? If your spouse was to leave because you were following Christ, is he worth it? You must be willing to give even your spouse up if God would require it. What about children? In in a church like ours, we're a fairly conservative group. There's a lot of homeschooling and and other things like that. We put a high priority on our children, on the training up of children, on, on the importance of children. We have children in here with us, worshiping, because we think that's important, that they be a part of this with us. But especially in times like ours, culturally speaking, in times of great apostasy, what you often see is that children will walk away from the faith of their parents. They'll walk away. And because parents have such a deep love and affection for their children, it becomes quite difficult for them to not want to go with them or or at least not want to, to water down their faith some so that it becomes more palatable for those children especially if the children give some kind of ultimatum where they will cut off their parents you understand how that would be such a difficult thing right that great love that you have for that child but this is where idolatry comes in because even the greatest loves right the most important loves of this life the most important virtues, even, of this life, if they are cut off from that ultimate source, you shall have no other gods before me, if they are cut off from God himself and become a thing in and of themselves, they are demonic, right? The greatest virtues become the greatest of vices when they're cut off from God, when they're removed from him. And I bring these up because within the family... This is where you find some of the deepest, some of the closest loves, which is why when when the gospel goes out to places where someone will be cut off if they start believing it, it becomes quite difficult, right? It's very difficult to be cut off from your family because it's such a high-order love. Is Christ worth it, right? Is he the one, or would he have to share with that family? Now, this happens the other way around too, right? What, What if your parents would cut you off if you continue to follow Christ. Are you willing to do that? Now, I'm going to be honest. It, it bugs me sometimes when people today talk about idolizing the family because I think a lot of times when people talk about idolizing the family, they don't, they're actually looking at people that just love their families in a good way, in a good ordered way under the love of God in a way that's biblical and right. But these are also because these are the highest of loves, the greatest of loves in this life. They can be the most difficult to give up to the Lord. 
you must be willing to lay down all other relationships to follow Christ. What does Christ say? If you would follow after me, you must hate father and mother, brother and sister, parent, child, even yourself, he says. You must be willing to lay down all other relationships that you have in order to follow Christ. He is the one. And so you must be of one mind, of one heart for him. You must be willing to give up sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend for Christ. If you're not, what you're saying is this momentary pleasure, that's, that is greater. That is better than him. Right? You don't get to say, well, you know, I will follow Christ as long as he lets me be who I am. Right? As long as he lets me continue as a, a gay man, I'll follow him. Right? Whatever your, your, your kind of deeply rooted identity is to you, whatever it is. If you say, well, I will follow Christ as that, but if he calls me to lay down that, I refuse. It's an idol. It's a false god. I will serve God if he provides for me wealth and comfort. I will serve God if my friends come along too. I will serve God if he gives me the, the kind of life I always wanted. I've always wanted to do these things. He needs to give that to me. I will serve God if he, he gives me the kind of political outcomes I want. To serve God if is not to serve God at all. It's to bargain with him. It's to set up another idol in the temple right in his face and to say, God, you have to share. And if you don't, well, then I'll just go home. I'll take my idol. I'll go home. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. So don't limit his word. Don't limit his authority over you. Whenever we deal with God's law, his, his commands, the things that he requires of us, our obligations in scripture, one of our favorite things to do, one of our favorite games to play is the, well, this doesn't really mean blank game. Well, this doesn't really mean what you think it does, right? This doesn't really mean that. It's, it's, not, it's not actually something that's hard for you to give up. Well, this doesn't really mean that, you know, wives have to submit to their husbands. Well, this doesn't really mean that you have to actually give 10% in a tithe. Well, obviously, this is cultural, right? So it doesn't mean we can't dress as we want, use the words that we want, consume the products that we want, live in the way we want, marry the people we want. Right? Obviously, this doesn't mean that. And now, of course, that's a perfectly fine statement in certain contexts, right? It is perfectly fine as we are trying to apply the scripture to say there are some things that this does not mean, right? This doesn't mean what you think it means on first read because you don't understand it yet. We do that all the time, and it's, it can be a perfectly right thing to say and do. And even all those things I just mentioned, I'm not I'm not making any statement about it. I'm trying to think of any of the things that make us most uncomfortable in Scripture when we first read them. I just, I just want us to 
think about those things which, which we're most likely to say, well, I don't really have to follow that. And just write it off before even taking any kind of responsibility for it. There are times that we do say this, but, but you need to be careful. Right? Keep close watch on yourself and make sure that when you do that, you're not just trying to defend one of your idols. You're not just, you don't just have this, you know, we've got this little family shrine, it's in the corner of the house, and God has the whole house. We just leave that right there. That one we just leave. Right, that one's always been there. We really like it. Don't touch that one. I just want to make sure you're not doing that when you play this kind of game. The way to diagnose that is, again, to ask that question. Well, if if God required it of you, would you be willing to lay it down? So if God really did mean what you think he doesn't mean, would you be willing to still follow him? Think about the parts of the scripture that make you most uncomfortable, right? The things that if you had to just read it out loud in front of somebody, you would feel a little squeamish about it. The places that you might think of as as quote-unquote problem passages of the Bible. Think about what those are for you. Is it statements about clothing, about head coverings? Is it statements about capital punishment for particular crimes or sins, the roles of men and women, the Bible's standard of sexuality and what sexual purity looks like? Is it the parts about service about being a servant leader, about laying down your own life for others? Is it the parts about forgiving others or you will not be forgiven? Is it the parts about God's wrath or his judgment about the Sabbath day or the parts where he speaks about slaves and masters? Think about whatever they are. Maybe it's none of those. But think about the things that Scripture says that make you most uncomfortable. And again, I'm not even making a statement about any of those things I said. I'm just trying to to think of all those things that make us most uncomfortable. To diagnose where we're at. If God did require those things of us, if there were things that God required of Israel that he still required of us, would you still follow him? Would you be willing to follow him? Where, where is the, the kind of core trajectory that you're on? Is it bringing God in to your life, right? He gets to be a part of my life. He's even maybe the most important part of my life unless he wants to take this over here. If God required any part of your life from you, would you serve him? Right? Would, would you receive that with joy and gladness of heart? Right? Is that the, your, your baseline presupposition is, I want to do what God says and I want to love doing what God says. If he, like a commander on a battlefield, brought you to the battle... And there in front of you was impossible odds, right? Guaranteed death. And he said, charge. Do you, do you question it for a moment? Do you think, no, I can't do that. 
Or do you listen? Do you obey? You, you have idols in your life, in your home, in your heart. What you must do is remove them, repent of them, and give them up to the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. He is the one and only, and so you need to worship him as such. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come saying, follow me with 40%, or at least 50%. No, the Lord Jesus demands total surrender and total obedience. And you should be glad to offer that. You should see the good of that, the blessing of that. And as much as you will fail, right, as much as, as you will find more idols in the storehouse of your heart, at the core of your being, is it that, that faith that says where I do find them, I'm going to bring them out and I will destroy them for the sake of Christ. You must serve the Lord with singleness of heart and mind, being willing to lay down everything for him. So I want you to dwell on that this week. Think about it, pray about it, right? meditate on it. And this is what I want for us right, as a church. I want us to pray this week that that would be true of us, that that would be core to who we are individually and corporately as a church. And specifically, I want you to pray this prayer, right? these words. I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. You can write it down if you don't think you'll remember, if you need to take a phone out as long as you won't get distracted and just type it up. But I want you to pray these words, Lord, help me to be fully devoted to you. Lord, help me to be fully devoted to you. And I want you to really try to pray this. I know you'll probably forget at times, but I want you to try to pray this. I want you to try to pray it as the first thing when you wake up. The first thing you do when you wake up, Lord, help me to be fully devoted to you. I want you to pray it before your meals. Right? Most of us already have that just in our, in our, our daily liturgies, our, our daily rhythms. We pray before we eat. Don't just thank God for the food. Also pray, Lord, help me to be fully devoted to you. Pray it with your family. Right? And kids, all the kids in here, I want you to pray this too. I want you to pray those words. Can you remember them? Do you think you could remember them? Say, Lord, help me to be fully devoted to you. I want it to be the last thing you pray before you go to bed, right? As you lay down for bed, pray that prayer. Lord, help me to be fully devoted to you. And I want us to do this because I want us to be on that same page, right? We all do it. We all do this as a church so that that becomes central and core to our identity as a church, as those who love God and are devoted to God, that we be fully devoted to him. Would you pray with me now? Lord, help us to be fully devoted to you. We do pray that where we have brought idols and false gods into your presence, into our hearts, our minds, in the places that only you have claimed to, that you would help us to remove them, to cast them down. We pray, God, that you would make us a people with a singular, holy, passion for you 
and that all of our other loves and loyalties would flow out of that most central one. Lord, help us to be fully devoted to you. In Christ's name, amen.